Hi, and welcome to The Full Bloom Project, a body-positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self-help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Leslie Block and Zoe Bisbing, both New York City-based adolescent eating disorder psychotherapists and mothers of two, here to help you help your children fully bloom. This episode of the Full Bloom Podcast is brought to you by our new body image group for parents, which we're excited to announce will begin on October 21st, 2019. This group will meet virtually on Monday evenings for six weeks. It's designed for parents who want extra support working through their own body image concerns. So often we hear from our guests that kids are watching and learning from their parents. So parents need to start body positive parenting by looking at themselves. A lot of parents may feel like their own struggles with their body or food may hold them back from being the best possible role model for their kids. If that sounds like you or someone you know, this group is an amazing opportunity to get support in overcoming insecurity, body shame, and a troubled relationship with food so you can help your kids do the same. Spots are limited to make sure it's meaningful for everyone who participates. So do let us know if you're interested at fullbloomproject.com slash course. Again, you can learn more or sign up for the group at fullbloomproject.com slash course. Welcome back to the Full Bloom Podcast, episode number 33. We're joined this week by Amy Severson, a registered dietitian nutritionist whose work focuses on body positivity, fat acceptance, and intuitive eating through a social justice lens. We'll be speaking today with Amy about health at every size, and in particular about a recent article she co-wrote in Scientific American about why fat is not the problem, but fat stigma is. She'll be walking us through the research every body positive parent needs to know about to understand the evidence base for the Hayes movement and what it means as a parent to rethink our culture's emphasis on weight loss as a means for achieving health. Amy, welcome to the Full Bloom Project. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. We are too. So let's start just by having you tell us a little bit about yourself and what drew you to your work as an RD who works with health at every size and intuitive eating. Yeah, so I am in Washington State in a fairly small town compared to Seattle, but I have a private practice here. This is my actual work that I do, the stuff that makes me, you know, money. Uh, (laughs) I work with uh, preventing eating disorders and eating disorders in general, and I work with all age ranges. Um, I also am a dietitian. I work very part-time, but yeah, so I see a big range of people and folks and just kind of all over the spectrum in that way. And my other work that I do that, you know, makes me a little less money is some activist work that I'm really passionate about. That's what I focus on with Instagram and a lot of the writing that I do, because I just think that's a really important piece of the recovery process, because, you know, we're recovering from eating disorders and we're trying to prevent eating disorders. 
Sorry, I have a little bit of a cold. Oh, you're in good company. We do too, both of us. <laughs> I have a five-year-old who just started kindergarten. Oh my gosh, so we. we both have five-year-olds that just started kindergarten, and I almost I was I was reluctant to send him today, honestly, because he was like saying, "Mommy, I got, I don't think so." <laughs> so we're all in it. We're all in the same wave of the school bugs. We are. <laughs> you're in good company. <laughs> so you're a mom too. That's that's nice to know. Yeah. And I, uh, just preventing eating disorders and working in this world and, um, trying to, you know, make the world a safer place for my kid. Um, I think it's really important to focus on changing the culture, not just changing individual beliefs about culture. Mm -hmm. So that's why I do a lot of the activist work and I really strongly believe in it. Yeah, us too. And I mean, we're particularly excited this week to talk to you about that article you published in Scientific American in July alongside Dr. Linda Bacon. The article we're talking about is fat is not the problem, fat stigma is, and we certainly agree. I I know our audience would love to hear from you about what led you to write that article and, yeah, just a little bit about that process connecting with Dr. Bacon. Yeah. Well, the article itself was technically a response to a very weight-normative doctor, I believe. Uh, They posted something on the blog of Scientific American that was very fat phobic and very painful to read. Honestly, Uh, I got pretty angry by the time I finished reading it. And this particular article was technically a response to that. But we decided to take a bit of a different angle. And instead of being defensive and angry about the article itself, we decided to just give the facts and be blunt and like, talk about it in a way that isn't attacking this other person, but like, hey, this is really a problem and it's something that deserves to be talked about. And I really like the way we went about that because I I feel like it, I feel like we just all attack each other too much and it wasn't worth it. It it wouldn't have gotten the point across the way we wanted to. So I really like the way that article came about and the way we decided to go about it. Actually, this article is kind of a strange story how this happened. I uh, met Linda at a talk she gave for IADEP Northwest. There's a large chapter here that's sprawled across a couple states. And just for those those listeners that don't know, um, I mean, we're familiar with IADEP. We're members as well. But could you just share what IADEP is? Yeah. IADEP is the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals. So it's for anyone, dietitians, therapists, doctors, anyone across the board who works with eating disorders can be a member of this group and can be certified as a professional. But we have, they they give a lot of conferences and a lot of trainings, and they were able to bring in Linda for a conference just south of Seattle in May. And it actually turned out that I was attending a training two days later in Portland with uh, Be Nourished, which is another really awesome organization. And Linda was giving a talk at Be Nourished. So she needed a ride (laughs) from the, the, just south of Seattle to Portland. So because I was doing the same trek, uh, I was her carpool. And so we had a couple hour carpool where we got a chance to to chat and get to know each other. And it was a really great experience. And I like to think that we got along pretty well. And maybe we're kind of friends now. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe also for our listeners, let's just introduce who she is. Yeah. Um, to our listeners, you're, you're, they you're, may not know. Your carpool friend. <laughs> Linda Bacon is, Dr. Linda Bacon is one of the co-authors of the book, Health at Every Size and Body Respect. They're not the founders of Health at Every Size, but they are kind of the 
the people that brought it into the mainstream Mm -hmm. and really made it more of a healthcare movement as well. And um, Linda now is a really big advocate for social justice and inclusion and does a lot of research in that area now and really focuses on the social justice aspects of health at every size and less on individual health because that's kind of my focus as well because it's not as important as just trying to bring justice and equality to everybody, equity to everybody. Yeah, one of the things, one of the reasons why we are really excited to talk with you today is because, you know, in our intro every week on our podcast, we say that we're dedicated to health at every size for the whole family, and we allude to health at every size in a lot of our interviews. Even when we're not really explicitly talking about it, it's the framework that both Zoe and I feel like underlies everything we do right now, particularly as we have evolved into this podcast. Our own practices Mm -hmm. have really aligned much more closely. Um, And we really wanted today to have an episode more directly devoted to health at every size and the research supporting it. So we kind of want to dive in with you on that topic and ask you first to just start by describing what, what you see as the current weight focus paradigm for understanding health that's so ingrained that many people see it as just kind of not something that we can challenge at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the weight normative, weight focused paradigm that exists now is, yeah, it's so ingrained, it's almost hard to explain. Um, because it's that it's that thing when you go to the doctor and you have an illness, and one of the first lines of defense is weight loss, is dietary changes, is just focusing on your weight when that is likely not the problem. And the higher weight you are, the bigger your body is, the more likely you are to go into the doctor with, you know, something that has absolutely nothing to do with your weight, like strep throat, speaking of sending kids to kindergarten Um, and being told that, you know, well, have you thought about losing some weight or what's your diet like? And taking the focus away from what the actual problem is and moving it into, it's about your weight and it's about your body size and about the BMI. And it's also, you know, those conversations we have with pediatricians about when, you know, your kid is, well, it's a little high of a, of a percentage or in the percentile, that's a little too high. And, you know, these conversations that are just very, so focused on weight and just kind of ignore the whole person. And we have more and more growing research to say that that is not the most appropriate or healthiest way or even address them at all for a lot of issues, but it's just so ingrained and so hard to move away from. And so, so deeply held within the medical community, the culture at large as well, that it's, it's, it's a challenge. It's, it's, it's really a cultural challenge to call it out as something that could be changed. Yeah. I mean, and I know we all think that one of the reasons why it is so hard to do that is because of this quote war on obesity, right? And we would love to hear you talk just a little bit about the, quote, war on obesity, maybe even why we do quotes or why a lot of folks in kind of the spaces that we're in do do quotes or won't even use the word obesity, right? Um, And where all of us, including children, get the message that body fat is a health threat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of us, if you you ever follow anybody who is in the anti-diet sphere, the health at every size sphere, Social media is the easiest way to see this because it's you can read it, but there will be a lot of air quotes or a lot of quotes around obesity and the war on obesity and overweight. And the reason we use those is because obesity and overweight are 
medicalizations of body sizes that actually has very little to no evidence supporting it being a medical diagnosis because it, it is technically a medical diagnosis and it has been since 2013, which by the way is actually completely against recommendations from the American Medical Association, the AMA. They decided against their researchers who'd said, you know, this might not be a good decision to, to make this a medical condition. We're afraid that the stigma and the effects of these wars on obesity we're going to create now will be more detrimental to health than the actual weight itself. And the AMA decided to make it a medical diagnosis. So a lot of us use obesity in air quotes. I was a little bit shocked, actually, with what you were saying, that the AMA, if I heard you correctly, the AMA, despite the research and recommendation, disregarded (laughs) what their researchers were advising. And instead of following the lead of the research-based recommendations, they said, no, we are going to go ahead and allow this term like obesity to be considered a medical diagnosis. Did I hear you correctly? Yes, you did. I I wish I had been wrong. I think um, we'll get to this later, but I think one of the things that makes it hard to even listen to that story is that, you know, the predictions, the hypothesis that the researchers had actually is happening, where the stigma of it is causing many more problems than the medicalization of it, the diagnosis of it is solving. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's particularly terrible because the, you know, the reason we use the air quotes and the quotes and, you know, people will star out letters of it and like make it look like a four letter word um, Mm -hmm. is because, you know, obesity is not a medical diagnosis. It's a medical diagnosis with technically with no medical criteria. Uh, It's based solely on height and weight the ratio of your height and weight. And we've I feel like we've talked for years and years and years now about how there are so many people who fall through the cracks in the BMI conversations. Like it's always been, you know, athletes fall through the cracks. Athletes have a really high muscle mass, so we can't qualify them. But also so do just humans. You know, it's just not it's not a very good qualifier of anything. Um, BMI itself came as a way to like measure the general size of the population from a guy who was just like really obsessed with statistics. Uh, he was like an astronomer and just started randomly asking people to self-report their weight and height. And by people, I mean, you know, middle-class white men in the 1800s, they, he asked them to self-report their weight. So that's where our BMI standards come from, actually, is middle-class white men who self-reported their height and weight in the 1800s. And here we are. And actually, overnight in the, in the mid-90s or late-90s, it changed. The the classifications changed also against recommendation. The research was showing that we should have raised the quote-unquote normal BMI range and we lowered it. So overnight people went to bed in a normal BMI and woke up the next day in an overweight category. Therefore, they started to like get recommendations for medical professionals that they should lose weight and they should make these changes. Oh my gosh. So let's yeah. talk about that. <laughs> Cause that. my, my blood boils as we anticipate this question. Cause we want to talk about that and it's just like, Oh my gosh, that's disturbing. Yeah. Let's talk about, I have this high theory, <laughs> but I want to kind of present it. Let's talk about this recommendation for weight loss that's handed out. Let's say that's prescribed as kind of like this first line treatment for if someone comes in with a high BMI, uh, overweight or obese category of BMI, there is a prescription 
typically that happens, which is weight loss. You know, it's not approved by the FDA because I guess it doesn't have to be. But I want to talk with you about the truth of that, you know, the truth of the the consequences of making that prescription, how much it actually, its efficacy, you know, does that do anything? Like, what is the reality here? What do people believe will happen through weight loss? What do doctors believe will happen? And what's the actual reality of writing that quote-unquote prescription? Yeah, it's so fraught because the research we have around this is also I think one of the most important things to think about is that the research is very biased because we can't not bring bias into this conversation. Um, Whenever we do research around weight or around interventions with weight, as in changing someone's diet or increasing exercise or actually seeing someone lose weight, there is bias inherent in that. And there's so many factors that we just can't account for. So that's like the first thing to take away is that the research itself is needs a pretty big grain of salt. The other thing is we also have no research to support or to show and very few anecdotes to show even that weight loss is possible. There's so few people who lose weight and keep it off for the long term. The longest we have studies that show is five years. And after that, we see either weight regain or even further weight regain where they're above the weight they were previously. And with that comes guilt and shame that you did it wrong. And, you know, that is actually the bigger problem in all that. And we just keep prescribing this. And a lot of times in the research and like the medical recommendations, it'll be things like, well, we recommend a small percentage of weight loss, um, you know, five to 10% or something. And this will have a big impact on your weight. And one of the things I always have to ask whenever I see that research or see that recommendation and or am told that recommendation is 5 to 10% of my weight now, okay, what if I come back in six months and I still have this medical condition or this person still has this medical condition? Are you going to recommend another 5 to 10%? Are you going to recommend, like, how, when does that end? Because it doesn't really end. The truth of it doesn't really end until you're in the quote unquote normal weight range. And then you get the interventions that might actually be helpful. (laughs) Like if medications are going to help you or a surgery is going to make your knee feel better, you're not going to get that recommendation until you're in the quote unquote normal weight range. Which is, you know, which is like most people won't get to that point anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And like, you know, there's so many stories of people who just try to lose weight and can't keep it off. I'm one. I like was never a quote unquote successful dieter and wasn't for lack of trying. Let me tell you that. Well, and I just want to like stop for a second and reiterate that it's not just you. It's 95% of people from what I understand, you know, the, the seems to be the statistic that we can lean on you know, over five years, I think there's so many, there's so, so many stories of, of, yeah, weight loss under five years, um, you know, maybe in a year or six months, you know, which is some of the claims like you need to have, I don't know, six months or something like that. But this is most people, it's, it has a 5% chance of working. And I think that reality is just, to me, I just think about like the FDA would never, ever, ever approve of medication that had a 5% chance of working, yet we're giving this recommendation to children, people, children. That, that, that's the one thing that really upsets me in my practice recently is that, you know, I've been 
having a really hard time with doctors who are gently suggesting things that don't work for adults. Why would it work for kids? You know, it's just, and when I bring this up, again, it comes back to that's just ingrained. Like there's no Mm -hmm. question that someone would suggest weight loss first or weight or Mm -hmm. not gaining any more weight or something like that. You know, and I I think that one of the most popular answers to that or even questions to that is something that I I think we have to take a quick break and we'll be right back. But I I just want to put this out there for you to think about this like, but what about health, right? And what about disease? And people are pointing out, right? People do point out that many diseases are more commonly found in people with higher weights. Like we hear this all the time. I don't want my kid to get diabetes. Like I want my kid to be healthy. I'm going to put that out there. And like I said, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Is that okay? Yep, that's great. Okay. I'm Isis Ward, a body positive parent and kids apparel director at Nike. I'm also a proud patron of the Full Bloom podcast. In both my personal and professional life, I'm constantly striving to be more aware of the social and cultural influences in our kids' lives. The lessons I've learned from the Full Bloom podcast have helped me be a more conscious parent and a business leader. This is why I became an official patron and hope you will too. For less than the price of a latte, you too can support this incredible mission and keep the Full Bloom podcast going strong so that more of our children can fully bloom. As a gift for your patronage, the Full Bloom Project will send you their ABC Guide to Body-Positive Parenting. This interactive resource is chock-full of research and practical tips. It's been an invaluable resource to both my family and my team at Nike. To learn more about how you can claim your guide and join me in supporting this very important project, please visit fullbloomproject.com Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And we're back. So, Amy, um, any thoughts about that question? Because, again, we, we hear it all the time. But what about health? You know, for real, what about health? And what about disease? Like, look, look at type 2 diabetes and the, and the juvenile, you know, population. So we're so curious. Like, how do you deal with that? How do you respond to that? Yeah. And that is, is it's such a common question. Um, it comes up so often, especially people who are new to this. And that makes a lot of sense because it's just what we've been told for so long. That's that weight normative thing. And I do have to concede because I always have to concede this, that yes, there are more instances of certain diseases in higher weight bodies. And that does not mean that that is the reason. Like we really have to hold on to this just because we see them more doesn't mean that it is because of the weight. In fact, there are more and more theories popping up that maybe some of these diseases like type 2 diabetes, like the gene that leads to type 2 diabetes, might actually lead to weight gain in and of itself. Does that mean it's something we should prevent in order to prevent the disease? Not necessarily, because one, we don't really know how. And two, if it's not the cause, then why would we treat it? It's just a really tough question. And especially we have all these other treatments for these diseases and ways to prevent these diseases. And we can do those too, and maybe should, because we can see that they're more effective. And the other thing to bring into this conversation is weight stigma and how the repeated attempts to lose weight and repeated attempts at restriction and that yo-yo dieting you end up doing and yo-yo weight loss. So losing weight and regaining it which I feel like is just like the age-old story. It's not new. Um, I remember growing up with those stories and seeing them in my family. And 
we have more and more evidence to show that those things, you know, losing weight and regaining it and dieting and not dieting again and again, and then the shame and the guilt we feel, and it's always so intense. There's so much tied up into it is way more likely to lead to health problems than the weight itself. People who had just never dieted have kind of just stayed fat their whole life and just kind of been okay and are intuitive eaters have lower instances of these diseases. I wish more people knew it. I mean, I guess that's why we're we're having you on and we're trying to talk about it in our own little way, trying to build a following of people that can take this new information in. And I, I find that sometimes it's a little bit of like preaching to the choir, right? Like kind of like you were saying, anti-diet, this kind of sphere we're in. I feel like everybody agrees about this. You know, I just really want this message to be broadcast in a more profound way. And I mean, as you were talking, I was just feeling really upset about the recent stuff with Kerbo and, you know, starting kids on lifestyle plans, whatever you want to call them, but let's call them diets because that's what they are. Just how that is that sort of seemingly innocent way of um, helping kids just be mindful and make good choices and live healthy lives. And and yet it's setting them up on this long pattern or this long journey that you're talking about, right? Where maybe that sort of weight cycling starts as young as eight. It's possible, younger, you know, and maybe even more significantly or at least as significantly the weight stigma. Because if you think you need to change your body, like if you're not one of those people that could either just be of average size or bigger than average size and and just be like, this is me, here I am, I'm going to eat intuitively and move joyfully, like you know, you're, you've got this premise that there's something wrong with you and you need to change. And that's the stigma. And then years and years and years of that compounds. And then I just, it's like, it's really hard to sit with, you know, especially as a parent. Yeah. I mean, I think the only way that we can start talking about this is really start talking about the side effects, you know, okay, so here is a treatment, a medicine, you know, that you could take for this illness um, or this what's going on in the body or you could try weight loss and these are the side effects you know and and these are the statistical likelihood that it's going to help and I I wish that we could make that happen for this recommendation of Mm -hmm. of weight loss because I think that would really change the game informed consent yeah You have to give that for any other medical intervention. You know, we have to be like, well, you know, this you, when you go to get a new prescription, you go to the pharmacy. The pharmacist is like, would you like to hear about the side effects of this medication? Mm-hmm. We don't do that with weight, with attempts at weight loss. And the truth is there are a lot of side effects and there are a lot of risks involved. And I mean, one of the main side effects, which I don't want to stigmatize, you know, but, but I, I think it's important to say, which is the main side effect is further weight gain. That's the primary side effect. So if you're going to go on the diet, know that your statistics are higher that you'll gain weight from this than lose weight. So w- <laughs> right. let's, I mean, I just... It's like going on a birth control pill and then the, you're more likely to get pregnant while you're on it. Yes, <laughs> it's a yes, great, it's a, a beautiful wonderful analogy. analogy. And I think it's really hard for people to accept that that is in all of our years of research that we have on this subject that's what we're with right now and it's not out there clearly like a parent comes in and works with me and says there's no way I'm putting my kid on medication you know and I and I'm like 
put you're comfortable putting your kid on a diet mm. you know like this let's try, how do i it's really hard i think as a as a therapist to speak in these terms because i'm starting to to cross into what a what a medical provider needs to say right and and only some of them are able or willing to say it mhm yeah it's there's nothing wrong with weight gain itself that's not the point and it's also the point, because it's something that we're so afraid of as a culture, and we're engaging in this thing that's likely to lead to more weight gain, which again brings in that stigma, brings in yeah. that guilt and shame, and like, I did it wrong, I need to fix it. And we do that to kids. We really do, you know, we do that to kids. We do. So we, I mean, we definitely want you to talk us through some of the evidence that shows how Hayes, which is just the acronym for health at every size, Hayes practices improve many measures of health without weight loss or introducing weight bias. And I want to just say as almost like a little caveat, because I think it connects to what we were just saying, even though we know that weight loss is fleeting, right? Like you could maybe do it for five years and then at best maybe you just gain the weight back, if not gain more. I'm thinking about the temporary privilege that can come when you do successfully shrink your body size, whatever age you are, because that is the culture we live in. We talk a lot about appearance ideals on the podcast. And so because we're talking about stigma and I know we're kind of talking about oppression, I want to just name the privilege that does come with weight loss and just think a little bit about how that makes even the rec- you know even the warning sign oh well you might only have this privilege for 5 years that's how valuable this privilege is to people so i kind of want to put that out there and then uh, ask us all to kind of hold that in mind and then just ask you to speak a little bit more specifically to the principles of Hayes in practice mhm yeah one thing i want to say too just real fast because i think it's important is that the reason that weight loss doesn't work long term isn't because we don't have the willpower Like, that's not the thing. I just think that needs to be said. It's not because we can't manage to do it long enough. It's our body rebels. So, Hayes, there are actually a lot more researchers are getting really interested in doing this research. Um, Tracy Tilka is one of the leaders in this work and doing a lot of intuitive eating studies. And intuitive eating and Hayes are not necessarily the same, but, you know, in the Venn diagram of the two, there, there's a lot of overlap. And a lot of these studies show that when we focus on interventions that aren't weight related, so it could be medication, it could be a few lifestyle modifications, it could be um, anything that isn't about changing your body size. And in a lot of ways, it's, this is where the intuitive eating, you know, chunk of the Venn diagram comes in as well. It's not even about like making these restrictive diets or big quote unquote lifestyle changes. It's about learning to listen to your body and trust your body. You know, that thing that the thing that we do to kids when we tell them, you know, no, you can't have dessert till you eat your carrots. You need to finish the food on your plate. All these rules we, we say, all those things basically put a wall between them and being able to trust their body and us and we grow up with that. We grow up with not feeling like we get to trust our body. And when we lose that trust, we lose that inability to hear our body. We really lose that inability to tune in to what our body is asking for. When we have that ability again, which we can totally do, like everyone innately 
well, the majority of people, there's a few very rare instances that this isn't the case, but the majority of people have the ability to tune back into their body and really start to learn it again. And a lot of these studies focus on that and the, the outcomes of that. And they often show pretty marked increases, you know, improvements, that's a better word, in like cholesterol, blood sugar, all these markers that we associate with being fat. Your body doesn't change and those things will change often. Sometimes they won't and that's fine because medication is also a very valid thing and some people need it. And it's really important to note that all these things can be done without restrictive diets, without weight loss. And when we put the pressure on our weight loss, we put it on this really weird individual responsibility to like do it right, do it better. And then we end up in this place of stigma where we have more and more evidence to show how terrible that is for our health. And if that's the, if that's the problem, if that we're all so concerned about health, then it's probably where we need to focus more. Yeah. I was thinking about how sort of sometimes a complicating factor is that a correlate, right, can sometimes be weight loss. <laughs> like it can happen sometimes, not always. And I think that's always really important for everyone to understand that just because you are practicing different kinds of health behaviors and, you know, moving joyfully and trying to eat intuitively, it doesn't mean that you would lose weight. But I think it's it's interesting. I find that people that have stories that say, well, yeah, but I, I did lose weight when I was taking better care of myself or practicing more self-care. It's almost like an interesting thing because it, it can kind of seem like that reinforces this <laughs> idea that weight loss is the thing that brought the levels down, right, that brought the blood pressure down. And so sometimes I, I think that can be confusing for people when they really did see a correlation that they may be mislabeling as causation. But I find that that can be kind of complicating. Mm-hmm. It can be, especially this is where some of like social media stuff can play in. When you see people who have, you know, intuitive eating accounts or something, body positive accounts, and they share maybe inadvertently, maybe on purpose, stories of their weight loss through intuitive eating, it gives this impression that, well, we're supposed to lose weight, like intuitive eating will lead us to lose weight, and I will be healthier with that. And the truth of the matter is, like, your body's going to do one of three things when you start eating intuitively or start working toward it and start working from a Hayes framework. And that's, you're going to lose weight, you're going to gain weight, or you're going to stay roughly the same. And I have no idea which one of those things you're going to do. And all of them are extremely valid and all of them could potentially happen. And you can still see health improvements at every single one of those changes or non-changes. Yeah, again, it's like separating the weight, the number from health, you know, really separating it out and trying to ask all of us to, what if we took that out of the equation? You know, I know it's so interwoven, but the truth is we we really don't need it to be interwoven and maybe it would be helpful to take it out so that we can actually focus on, you know, our health. It intervenes with health when people kind of use it as a proxy for health. So I'm wondering if 
you could answer the million-dollar question for us, if each parent listening to this podcast today took away and did one thing on the regular, what's the one thing you would recommend they do to help their child fully bloom? I would say practice, because it's a practice, fostering a relationship of trust and autonomy for your child, for your child and your child's body. Um, and that relationship with food, because it's so important. It's so important. And that's one of those things that as parents, we can model and we can give room to grow for these kids to be in a good relationship with that, not feel so stressed out and so much pressure to not trust their body. And it's hard because it never comes from a place of well, very rarely comes from a place of anything other than I just want better. I want better for my kid. And knowing that this can be a better way, watching your kid become an intuitive eater or be an intuitive eater is really cool. And allowing that trust to just exist is a really awesome thing to see. We totally agree. And I know that the health at every size principles will support that. So before we sign off for today, do you have any recommendations for those who might be curious and learning more about health at every size? You know, there might be skeptics. There might be people that are like, oh my gosh, tell me more just before we sign off. Yeah. A really good resource for parents for health at every size um, is Body Respect by Linda Bacon and Lucy Aframore. Um, That's a really good, pretty digestible read. Yeah, that's probably the best book I would recommend for that. But also, you know, find more podcasts. There's a ton out there that really focus on health at every size and just dig in. (laughs) I like that. Dig in. Thank you so much for your time on the podcast with us today. Thank you for having me. So that's our show. We would love to hear any reactions or questions that came up for you during this episode. So please send us an email at info at fullbloomproject.com. And as always, if you like what you're hearing, we would really appreciate you leaving us a rating or review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts so more people can find the podcast. And please consider becoming a patron of our podcast and visiting fullbloomproject.com slash Patreon so that we can keep producing and delivering this content to you. Thank you all for listening. And remember to tune back in next time for more body positive parenting wisdom. Mm -hmm.